Amidst all of the impeachment hoopla, not to mention what's going on in the rest of the world, perhaps not as many people as otherwise would have noticed the fact that President Trump dropped his peace plan for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict last week. What is the Trump peace plan all about? Will it work? What are the reactions from domestic and international actors likely to be? And taking elements of the Trump peace plan as a framework are the things that could be improved that would make some sort of positive outcome more likely. On this bonus episode of Blind Politics, I'll break down the Trump peace plan, the good, the bad, the weird, and some possible directions that we can go from here. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another thrilling episode of Blind Politics. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. As always, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the Robertson School or Regent University as a whole. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can also follow us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram at Blind Politics, or on Twitter at Blind Paul, P-O-L, Nolte, N-O-L-T-E. So here we have the Trump peace plan. And this is a historically significant document for a number of reasons. It is the first comprehensive peace plan of this nature to have been released in quite some time. It changes the name of the game. It changes the discussion in several ways. It is clearly, I think, written as a document that would completely revamp the Palestinian Israeli peace process that has obviously been dead for quite some time and revive it in in a very new form where facts on the ground have changed. And so there's been a lot of reaction to this. There have been some people saying that this is the the greatest peace plan ever put together. Those are generally the people that you would expect to say that. There have been others saying that this is a, you know, totally pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian document that is designed to get BB reelected and to give all of the, the Israelis everything they want immediately and the Palestinians promises of future considerations that may or may not ever happen. And those are pretty much the people that you would expect to say that. And so I would say largely thus far, reactions to the peace plan have gone along fairly predictable lines. What I would say also predictably for myself and for blind politics is that a fairly nuanced and complex take. There are aspects of the peace plan that I think are very sensible and that that have made some realistic choices that really reflect facts on the ground and reflect realities that need to be dealt with. There are other areas in which I think the peace plan probably goes a little bit too far, too fast in giving the Israelis what they want. Not to say that the Israelis are totally wrong for, for their desires in those specific instances, but I think there might be more of a phased structure that would be appropriate for some of that. And then I think there are other areas that are just a little bit head-scratching from, from my perspective and demonstrate maybe that elements of this were done by people that didn't have a full spectrum of experience with aspects of this conflict. And that is not necessarily to discredit the Trump team as compared with, with past teams, because the areas where I think they have done the least thorough, least fully engaged, least effective aspect of this are the areas where other peace plans in the past have really failed. And that is dealing with the religious and sacred dimensions of the conflict. 
Nobody's ever really gotten that right. The Trump plan doesn't, but it doesn't in, in some, it gets it wrong in some significantly different ways, which are interesting and which we'll get into in a few minutes. So let's start with the good. And by the way, the, the peace plan is called Peace to Prosperity. And we may actually drop a link to the full PDF of the plan in the show notes if you want to read that or even read along and, and come back and touch on some of these points. Basically, I'm going to start with what I like about the plan, go into things that I, I would change, you know, maybe tweak, and then I want to end by talking about the sacred component, and that's going to be kind of the first half is working through the plan. And the second half is, what are the implications of this? So, things I liked. Number one, I think there is a realistic understanding of the fact that a Palestinian state, if, if the two-state solution is the direction that you're going with this, and in this plan it is, a Palestinian state is going to require significant investments in terms of governance, economic development, and so forth. There's also a realistic recognition that right of return to sovereign Israeli territory for Palestinian refugees is not going to happen. And what I think this plan envisions, which is sensible, is you make that significant investment in Palestinian economic growth, development, governance, growth, and development, and so forth, and then you use that to incentivize the refugee population to come back and settle in an economically vibrant and developing Palestine and Palestinian state. And so that makes sense. You know, the idea that you're, you're going to solve the refugee problem by having people come back to the West Bank and Gaza is really predicated on the idea of economic development there. And so tying those two things together makes a good, a good bit of sense. There's also, I think, some proper castigation of the Arab states for essentially not taking in any of the Palestinian refugee populations. I think that maybe they go a little bit overboard in castigating Lebanon, which, let's remember, part of the reason that the Lebanese have not naturalized the Palestinians, which they, the peace plan points out is, is something that Lebanese have not done. Well, part of the reason for that is because Lebanon's government system is based on a balance of the various different religious and ethnic communities in Lebanon, and certainly naturalizing Palestinian refugees would destabilize that balance and potentially crack the entire Lebanese political system. We can argue that maybe Lebanon's political system should be, broadly speaking, renegotiated. That's a whole different issue. But the reality is Lebanon, as it currently exists, would be even more destabilized if they naturalized the Palestinian refugees than they were already. There is comparatively little critique given to the Gulf states, which are the far and away wealthiest Arab states, which very well could have put this investment in the West Bank and Gaza, if they really cared about the success of the Palestinian people before, but have not done so. And so again, we're seeing those personal relationships that Trump and his team have with people like Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the personal relationship that Trump and his team have with other Gulf leaders. And so you're seeing critiques of the Lebanese. You're not really seeing critiques of the, uh, the UAE, of Saudi Arabia, of these other countries for talking a good game about the Palestinians, but not really actually doing anything to help them. And so, you know, I, I, my hope is that those conversations are happening in private. My hope is that behind this is the understanding that if there are going to be these massive capital investments, that that's coming from the Gulf countries, that if there are going to be refugees that are going to be repatriated to other Arab states, that the Gulf countries, since they want this alliance with Israel, since they want a unified front against Iran, that part of the, the thing they're going to have to cough up is making life better economically for these Palestinian populations and the displaced Palestinian populations, and that that's going to be the cost of an alliance with Israel against Iran. Is to, to help, they, they are going to help make that refugee issue go away. And so hopefully Trump is having these conversations and you know, very serious conversations with the leaders in the Gulf about this is the cost of this for you guys, and this is what you're going to kick in. That's not reflected in the plan, but we can hope that that's happening behind the scenes. But in general, I think the idea 
that you're going to have an economic growth-led, governance development-led strategy for developing the Palestinian sector in the West Bank and Gaza that is going to culminate in the creation of a Palestinian state that then has a vibrant economy, that has a civil society, that has civil servants that are, are properly trained and really accountable governance. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's probably should have been something that we've been doing for quite some time. And so that's that's the biggest good, I would say, in this. I think the other thing that is good is that this plan really tries, tries to start from a realistic appraisal of facts on the ground without trying to reimpose past realities of, for example, the 1967 borders. You know, I think there is certainly something to be said for that, but the pragmatic matter, I think there are limits in the degree to which you can just disentangle things and reset the clock to 1967 and pretend that the settlements and all these things that have happened since then just haven't happened and, and will go away. I don't think that's that's realistic. I think that they're right on that. Does that make things more complicated? Yes. Does that make things much more problematic on the ground? Yes, it does. And I, I, do I think that in full, they've done a good job of, of accounting for that and they're, you know, recognizing that Israel is going to have to compromise some of what it wants to. No, they, they really haven't accounted for that. And we'll get to that in a second. But as a, as a practical matter, you're not going to dismantle all of the settlements in the West Bank and, and push all of those Israeli citizens back into Israel at this point. That's just unlikely. It's highly unlikely. And the Israelis are not going to agree to that. And there's no way, given the unique components and complexity of the Israeli political system, for those who don't know, Israel has a proportional representation system with a very low threshold for governance, meaning that if you get you know, something like 3.1% of the vote, you get four seats in the Knesset. As a practical matter, that means that it's very hard, and, and to form a government, you have to have 61 seats. So as a practical matter, even though the settlers are a small segment of Israel's population, the only way you're ever going to be able to form a government without them is, is with some sort of broad-based alternative and or electoral reform on a large scale, which has never happened in Israel. So the reality is Israel is never going to be in a position or may never be in a position where it even could agree to a deal like that if it wanted to. And given the fact that the last time Israel pulled back all of its settlements in Gaza, Hamas ended up in control of that area, I don't necessarily think you're going to see a consensus for that anytime soon. The last person who tried to do that, Ariel Sharon, essentially ruined his political career, and the party that he tried to form went down in flames as a result. So I would be very skeptical that we're going to see something like that emerge from Israeli politics. So to a certain extent, we have to recognize the realities on the ground are what they are. And I think that this plan does sort of try to start from that. Otherwise, in terms of positives, I think that there is a lot of new and innovative thinking, and I think that there hasn't been a lot of new and innovative thinking. I think the idea of regional integration, or regional, you know, think things like regional security cooperation, free trade agreements that are going to include Jordan, Egypt, and eventually in Lebanon, the idea that you can try to think about things regionally, I think that's good. I think there were there was discussion of that. This focuses more on doing that type of thing from an economic perspective. There are pluses and minuses to that, but one of the pluses is you are then not dependent on some of the political whims of the local populations and people can start to see the economic benefits of integration before you start to see some of the political agreements. So those are some of the positives of the plan. Things that I don't particularly think will work or, or I'm not a huge fan of. The conceptual map, I think, is problematic because 
you do have a Palestinian state that is non-contiguous. In other words, the territory that Israel, by this plan, would be allowed to annex would essentially cut any future Palestinian territory in half. And the plan talks a lot about overpasses and tunnels going over or under Israeli territory. Well, I think that probably the Palestinian reaction makes sense in, in the sense of you know, they're not seeing this as a legitimate peace plan. Because if your argument is we're going to give you a state that is going to be connected by a hypothetical you know, Boston Big Dig or something like that in the future, you know, assuming you do the things that we're asking you to do, we're also going to let the Israelis annex all of this territory right now. I think you can kind of understand why the Palestinians wouldn't accept that. The plan itself didn't have a lot of input from Palestinian interlocutors. Partially, this is because the Israelis will argue, and I think there's some justice in this, they don't have a legitimate partner in the Palestinian Authority, or certainly in Hamas. And I think there's some truth to that. The Palestinians are long overdue, in my opinion, for an Arab Spring movement. They, they do have problems of governance. They do governance. They do have problems of corruption. They do have problems of political leadership that's more interested in lining their own pockets and playing you know, uh, th- these types of games than helping the people. Those problems will not be made better by this, the mass annexation of all territory with settlements on it that is envisioned by this. What I would say, suggest as an alternative is a conditional and phased annexation, whereby you would start by annexing those regions of the West Bank, the, the settlement, that have the least geographic footprint, but the highest density of Israeli citizens. In other words, areas that are the closest in to Israeli territory. So number one, they're not extending out as far. Number two, areas that are the most densely settled with Israelis. And number three, areas that are going to do the least to potentially privilege or prevent the development of a Palestinian state with contiguous territory. Right? So first, Israel gets a sort of highly, what I would call sort of a highly dense nibble, where they're getting a lot of the population or as much of the population and as little of the land area as possible in the first take. And that is something we'd say, okay, Israel, you can do this right now. This is obviously territory that's going to stay part of Israel because it's so densely settled at this point. And then what I would do from, from future is any any future Israeli annexation would be conditional. In other words, there would be a set timetable. And if within timetable, the Palestinian Authority has not met goals X, Y, and Z, from the plan, and you could go back right to the governance and economic development and so forth benchmarks of that. And if they have not met those benchmarks by a certain time period, then you see a little bit more annexation and so forth. With the ultimate endpoint being, if none of these goals are made, then Israel will annex all of the territory envisioned in the conceptual map. In other words, what you've, what you've done by that, and by making it conditional and phased, for the most part, is you've given the Palestinians essentially the right to earn that contiguity. You've given them investment, you know, you, you have given them, in a sense, the right to build trust. And as trust is built, as institutions are built, as it looks like they are moving in a positive direction, then you don't see annexation and you don't see further settlements. The settlement, the halt to settlements while this process works itself out is a good component and that is pretty much going to have to happen if you're going to have any, any kind of peace. So it, it would give, essentially, the Palestinians a very strong incentive to work the plan and work the process. Because the more they do, and the more successfully they do, then the less of this territory eventually gets annexed. And so it's not necessarily saying Israel should take the whole thing at once, but it is more using that as as a threat or using the absence of it as a carrot to incentivize these certain performances. Because the reality is there's actually no incentive for 
the head of the Palestinian Authority, for Mahmoud Abbas, for the people that are you know in charge of Hamas, for any of these groups to actually play ball with this, right? And so that's the problem is you've given them no reason to buy in. Yes, it would be better for the Palestinian people, right? So if you're an average Palestinian on the street, you could say, yeah, these billions of dollars investment that they're talking about would be better for me. But there's no reason for their political leadership to actually play ball with us. There's no, there's nothing in the plan. Whereas if it's a more phased and conditional, then you know, just as a pragmatic matter, there's a reason for them to play ball. Because if their lack of cooperation with the plan then becomes the reason for future annexation, you know, that causes a backlash in the Palestinian street. So I think there needs to be a lot more if-then. It needs to be a lot more conditional. And if the Palestinian targets are met, and if you start to see the development of this vibrant Palestinian economic state and, and so forth, you know, within sp- specific timelines, you see specific measurable outcomes that are positive. Then I think maybe you you do talk to the Israelis and say, okay, well, things are moving in the right direction. They're doing their proportion. And so you need to talk about pulling back. Now, I think also the pill about pulling back territorially becomes easier to swallow if the Palestinians are meeting those benchmarks. And so insofar as the Palestinians are showing themselves to be working the process and to be a reliable partner, that might incentivize the Israelis to say, okay, some of this we can pull back on. Obviously, that's going to be a tough sell. It's going to be a tough sell, particularly for those folks that see the control of those territories by the state of Israel as a religious or ideological imperative. And so you are going to actually need a pretty strong coalition in Israel that would support something like this. And that's always that's always a, a difficult, fragile process, is building that, that type of coalition in Israel. So what I think a phased conditional approach is perfect. No, it's not perfect. But I think it might work better for the stated goals of this thing than actually the approach that they put in place. That, I would say, is probably the main thing that I, I don't like. I don't like the way they've handled Jerusalem. I think that it, it... And it's not because it's talking about how the undivided capital of Jerusalem is going to be in for, for Israel. I mean, that's fine. But then you talk about this other area off across the river that's going to be the capital of Palestinians, and they can call it Al-Quds if they want. Well, Al-Quds is the Arabic word for Jerusalem. So is it a divided Jerusalem or an undivided Jerusalem? Or are you just having a you know chunk of territory, a chunk of largely... Arab areas that you're just calling Jerusalem. You know, you're, you're renaming to the Arabic word Jerusalem, and, and you know, however that's going to work, that is, is how that works. I, I have some suspicions that that is not really a solution, and that's not really a solution that's going to be acceptable to, at least to the Palestinians, and whether it's acceptable to the Israelis or not, I'm not even sure. So, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that that's really going to be an efficient starter. And then the other, the final thing, and this is, I would say, the weird, is the way that religion is handled in this whole thing. Keep in mind that, you know, I would argue, and this works from uh, some scholars like Ron Hasner who've done a lot of work on this, that the reason the 1998 plan failed, which, by the way, envisioned a much more contiguous, not quite quite 100% contiguous, but a much more expansive kind of Palestinian state, big part of the reason why it failed is because nobody could come to an agreement about the Temple Mount. And essentially the idea here is, well, we're just going to maintain the status quo, but the Palestinian state gets to build a religious tourism center and, and you know, with the shops and hotels and stuff like that, so they can make money off of the pilgrimage that people want to make to the site in, in Jerusalem, be it Christian sites or Muslim sites, but, you know, the Israelis are still going to control it. I think that's actually counterproductive because for people that see control of the Al-Aqsa Mosque by a Muslim country as something that legitimately has to be done as a, a state of their religion, Telling them that you can get tourist dollars in response is not actually meeting that religious requirement. You know, it would be sort of like 
saying to the Jews, you can have the tourism from the, to the Temple Mount, but it's going to be under somebody else's control. When you're talking about sacred land, land, territory that is sacred to more than one party in a conflict, and where that sacredness is not divisible, in other words, you can't have other religious structures on specific sites because it impacts your ability to, to have a relationship with the divine, which is mediated through that particular piece of land. You can't just throw tourist dollars at the problem and say this is going to solve that sacred dimension of the conflict. And so the Trump administration has been quite good on religious freedom, for example. There are people in the administration who understand religion as well as, if not better than, any other administration in recent American history. And yet it seems like those people had no input into this because they just really don't address the religious aspect. The other aspect is when they're talking about governance in the Palestinian Authority. There's no discussion of trying to bring in religious actors and using, for example, the U.S. faith-based office and USAID to do civil society programs for Christians and, and Muslims in the Palestinian territory, you know, to basically make the argument from within their religious traditions that better governance and peace are, you know, important and necessary. And by the way, there are good nonprofit organizations that are trying to do that work now. They could probably use some some assistance. So I think the if you don't solve the religious component, you're not going to solve this. And you can't just decouple it and hope that it's going to go away if you throw enough economic development at it. That was essentially one of the main arguments that people made after 9-11 was that if we just economically develop these areas, they, there won't be terrorism anymore. Well, that doesn't work. We know essentially that Sometimes a rising middle class, as more people move into the middle class out of extreme poverty, they actually become more religious, not less. A lot of the hijackers from 9-11 were from middle class and upwardly mobile type Muslim families. Now, there are limits on that upward mobility, which is a, a totally different problem. But, you know, religiosity doesn't just vanish. And religious conflicts like this don't just vanish if you throw enough money at the problem. So there's a little bit of that in this plan. And I think that's a bit of a head scratcher. Ultimately, I think that a religious conflict or religious dimension to this is going to require a religious solution. And you need somebody, you need an actor that has cachet on both sides of the street, both the Israeli and the Palestinian sides of the street within the religious sector that could actually play that bridging role and come up with a solution on that. So on the whole, I think this is innovative. I think there's a lot of new thinking in this, which is good. I think there's an attempt to build off of pragmatic realities, which is good. But I think in an attempt to help Israel, Sometimes there's been some short-term thinking in terms of you know what's, what's good in the short term, as opposed to long-term thinking in terms of the territory that is full of Israeli settlements on the West Bank. And second of all, I think they really don't get religion. And there has not been an adequate attempt to wrestle with the religious dimensions. The last quick note that I want to make is how outside actors are going to react to this. The Palestinians have already said this is a total non-starter for them. Israel is going to vote soon on certain components of this, particularly the annexation component. And by the time you listen to this podcast, that may or may not have already happened. It was scheduled for Sunday. It was then delayed. I'm not exactly sure what the status of that is as I'm recording. You may know more about this by the time you, you hear this than I do right now as I'm recording it. Outside, what is interesting to note is who was there. So the Gulf countries were there when the Egyptians were there, when President Trump presented this plan. That implies to me that the Gulf countries are very interested in supporting this, and they see a lot of a framework and a lot of involvement in this. That's a huge shift because the Gulf countries being willing to essentially tacitly give the green light for some of this stuff is a little bit surprising. The other actor to watch, obviously the Iranians are going to come out opposed to it. Hamas came out and said this plan is nonsense, which is fairly restrained for Hamas. 
the Turks have also come out and slammed this plan. And that, the Turks bear watching because they have been trying to assert themselves through the ideology of Islamic Ottomanism, or Ottoman Islamism, one of those, you know, however you want to phrase it. Anyway, they, they are looking at political Islam through the lens of uh, sort of the, the Ottoman Empire and restoring the, the Islamic Ottoman rule of Abdul Hamid. Erdogan in some ways sees himself as a second Abdul Hamid, and so Erdogan, uh, you know, sort of interjecting himself into this in support of the Palestinians in, in opposition to this plan, trying to stir things up and trying to throw a spanner into the works here would make a lot of sense for him. It would probably cost him very little, and I would definitely expect the Turks to try to assert themselves in some way, shape, or form in response to this. And probably fairly soon we're going to have a podcast that's actually a preview of a talk that I gave at a conference last November on Turkey and Turkey's foreign policy strategy in the Middle East. It was sort of an evergreen topic, and other things have been a little bit more pressing, but I think we're going to be bringing that one out to you guys fairly soon. That's for the regional actors. Beyond that, I, I don't I don't see this changing much. It may change the Israeli political scene more than anything else. Netanyahu is essentially talking about a deal whereby Kaholavan will back the peace plan, but Bibi will withdraw his need for an immunity agreement. That sets up the possibility of what's been called the Nixon option, where Kaholavan and Likud both become probably the two largest parties coming out of the next election. Bibi steps down. Bibi then gets immunity. So, you know, a resign, a resign and pardon, which is essentially what happened with, with Richard Nixon. And then you see some sort of coalition government of Likud and Kahlavan. That is interesting because that coalition government would probably be large enough to get a lot of stuff done. It would be large enough to effectively do a lot of things because there, there's policy agreement on a lot of things in Israel. And so that would be, that would be an interesting possible outcome to see where, where kind of things end up from there. Okay, so that is a wrap on this Trump peace plan episode of the podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Five-star ratings help us out very much. Tell your friends, tell the grocery store clerk, tell the bellman at the hotel if you're traveling, tell your, your aunt who keeps wanting to talk about politics at the dinner table to rate and subscribe to Blind Politics. Share us on your favorite social media network. All of this helps us out very much as we are trying to build the profile of this. And I think that the commentary that is put out from this is pretty good. We've got some exciting things planned in the not-too-distant future. As you may have noticed, our impeachment episode did not happen. Impeachment is moving faster than the speed of podcasts. In fact, I can almost guarantee by the time this is out, the impeachment will be at a different state. So what we're going to end up doing is not doing an impeachment podcast. Because every time I try to do one, something changes. And assuming that the impeachment trial is over, and we've moved on to something else by then. If I, I, I am, you know, slightly superstitious about the fact that if I try to record a, you know, lessons of or reactions for, uh, to impeachment podcast that, you know, something new will come up and somehow it'll get reopened and, you know, I'll be responsible for continuing our national nightmare. So to avoid that, we're just not going to do a podcast on it because it seems to be divine providence. The Lord in all of his wisdom is telling, is, is, is essentially trying to tell us that this is, uh, this is not a podcast that needs to be done by blind politics. So we're just not going to. But we are going to continue focused on a lot of the big picture policy issues that you want to hear about. We'll do a little bit of continuing elections analysis. I'm still planning on continuing the series on conservatism. Don't worry if you are really interested in that. Parts two and three are going to be coming out soon. We've also got a lot going on internationally. So I'm hoping to get the China podcast out in the not too distant future as well. I've been promising that one for a while. And I think that's going to happen. So with all that being said, thank you for listening. And... We'll see you again next week. 
For Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte, signing off.